Hello, my name is Anne-Marie Cannon, and I'm the host of Armchair Historians. What's your favorite history? Each episode begins with this one question. Our guests come from all walks of life. YouTube celebrities, comedians, historians, even neighbors from the small mountain community that I live in. They're people who love history and get really excited about a particular time, place, or person from our distant or not-so-distant past. The jumping-off point is the place where they became curious, then entered the rabbit hole into discovery. Fueled by an unrelenting need to know more, we look at history through the filter of other people's eyes. Armchair Historians is a Belgian Rabbit production. Stay up to date with us through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Wherever you listen to your podcast, that is where you'll find us. Armchair Historians is an independent, commercial-free podcast. If you'd like to support the show and keep it ad-free, you can buy us a cup of coffee through Ko-fi, or you can become a patron through Patreon. Links to both in the episode notes. Hello, fellow Armchair Historians. Anne-Marie here. First of all, I'd like to start off by saying thank you to all of my Patreon and Kofi supporters. You know who you are, and it means the world. In this episode, I talk to Gregory Smithers about his new book, Reclaiming Two Spirits, Sexuality, Spiritual Renewal, and Sovereignty in Native America. Two Spirits is a sweeping history of indigenous traditions of gender, sexuality, and resistance that reveals how, despite centuries of colonialism, Two-Spirit people are reclaiming their place in Native nations. Gregory Smithers is a professor of American history, an eminent scholar, 2019 to 2024, in the College of Humanities and Sciences at Virginia Commonwealth University. He received his PhD in history from the University of California, Davis, and has taught in California, Hawaii, Scotland, and Ohio. Smithers is currently a British Academy Global Professor based in the Treated Spaces Research Cluster at the University of Hull. Gregory D. Smithers, welcome to Armchair Historians. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. What is your favorite history that we're going to be talking about today? (laughs) You know, it's funny. In the current climate, cultural and political climate we're living through, that's not a straightforward question anymore. There's variables that go into defining what one's favorite history is. I wrote this history, Reclaiming Two Spirits, in a way that blended my favorite types of history writing and sort of history detective work. I like histories that most historians ignore. So I I look at the gaps in the archives and the little cracks where information about people's stories we don't often hear about might exist and where most historians are are not particularly interested in looking. So I'm I'm really interested in in digging into those stories that we might historically have defined as marginal. And I'm going to come back to that term in the course of our conversation because it's a term that Two-Spirit peoples themselves have used and have have sort of turned on its head to empower their own political activism since the 1970s. But in general, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy histories that move beyond capital H history, 
capital H history being, of course, that sort of history that came out of the Enlightenment and it's, you know, this pretense of objectivity and the sources for writing our history have to be written and found in an archive or in books. I see history as something much broader than that. And and I don't want to say democratic, but certainly more holistic. I, I see history when I walk to the to the grocery store. I see history in people when they go to nightclubs and dance. I see history when people go to whatever religious service they're engaged in, whether it's football on Sunday or, or an actual church or a temple. History is all of those things. And getting a sense of what people bring to those moments of history making and how they understand what that means in their lives is a very difficult thing to do. It requires something that I talk about in the book quite extensively, this this concept of, of radical empathy, of really trying very, very hard to take yourself out of your own skin and place yourself in someone else's position in life to try and and, and get a sense of how they might be experiencing life in the past, in the present even. Even in the present, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. So yeah, so I'm, I'm really interested in those sort of history making, the doing of history, the embodying of history in, in all of those various venues that I, that I talked about. From high culture to low culture, it all interests me. But particularly those stories, as I mentioned, that historians typically ignore because they think there are no sources there to study them. Right, right. I love that. And this is exactly the kind of history I try to bring to the show. Mm. Indigenous history, one of the things that I think they have over this, you talk about the Big H or, you know, European colonial history. Mm. What we lack is the um, stories that are passed down. Mm-hmm. Um and there is, you know, what is history? That's a big question. Mm. And I think that everything you just said is what I agree with. So you're definitely preaching to the congregation. <laughs> and I think that there is just, you know, so many histories that have been erased, but mm. perhaps there are some breadcrumbs that are left behind. Yeah. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, the way that we look at, we have traditionally looked at history is not perhaps, it's problematic. And that's what I try to bring to my show. So I love, mm. you know, your whole philosophy and the way that you approach your subject matter. Uh, specifically today, I know that you have a book that's going to be coming out in April. Yeah, so Reclaiming Two Spirits will be out in April. And it's a story that I came to over many years of research and, and talking to friends throughout Indian country. And recognizing that there really hadn't been a broad sweeping history of Two-Spirit people since the late 1980s, um, there have been some really very good specialized works in, in the field of literary analysis. A little bit of work has come out in anthropology um, and the health sciences. But in terms of historical thinking, historical knowledge and how we understand and connect the various ways of understanding about the past to two-spirit histories today, that's that's something that hasn't been done for, for many decades. And I think it is because that most historians 
tend to be wedded to their sort of methodological way of doing things. They're very much materially oriented in the sense that written archives are the sort of the gold standard for understanding mm-hmm. the past. Um, and that's a product of their training. It's not necessarily a deliberate form of prejudice or discrimination, although sometimes it slips into that, I have to say. And there are several books that have been written that include analysis of, of two-spirit peoples since the late 80s and early 1990s that I think members of the two-spirit community rightly viewed as really highly offensive works, really pejorative in the way that they presented the multitude of, of traditions that we understand today uh, as two-spirit. Could we just back up for a minute? Yeah. Because first I want to know the full name of your book, let our listeners know what the title of your book is. And then could you talk more about what this idea of two spirits is and how you kind of approach it, how you mean it when you use it, yep. that type of thing. Yeah. So the title of the book is Reclaiming Two Spirits, Sexuality. Oh my goodness. Sexuality. <laughs> I forgot it's the title of my own book. It is a long one. <laughs> uh, it's... um. Sexuality, spiritual renewal, and sovereignty in Native America. There you go. That's the one. Yeah, I remember writing that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. So the so I'm an ethno historian, which means that I I take a whole bunch of sources from wherever I can get them, written sources, um, archaeology. Uh, I bring anthropology to my work. Um, it's a very promiscuous methodology that I use. Because what I recognize in the work that I do is that human beings don't live in the methodological silos that historians tend to live in. Uh, You know, think about economic history, social history, you know, cultural history, whatever that means to you at any given time. So I, I tend to try and understand history from all of these different perspectives. It's kind of like if you go to a theater production in the round And every time you sit somewhere different in the audience, you see the same production uh, different times, you'll hear and feel and smell something different and get something else out of the performance. And that's what I'm trying to do with a book like Reclaiming Two-Spirit is to get at those elements of, of the past, how they connect with the present, how people live history and, and sort of the lessons of, of elders from the past in the present and how they're renewing them in the 21st century. That's how I've gone about uh, trying to understand two-spirit histories, which is not necessarily something that has been done a lot. Um, as, As I said, there's a lot of studies by literary scholars that talks about the writing and the art of of two-spirit peoples and anthropological studies from the 1980s and 1990s in particular. But historians in general, if they have approached this topic, it has been, I I hate to say it, but taking the written archive at face value, and that written archive is filled with prejudices, Mm -hmm. it's filled with misogyny, and it's violent on many levels, violent in the way that it describes European contact with with people we understand today as two-spirit. And it's violent in the way that it erased two-spirit people from the archive, except as victims of of colonial violence. So I was very mindful of all of that when I was writing the book. Um, Now, I should point out this concept of two-spirit, although the history behind it is centuries, perhaps millennia old, the concept itself is very new. 
that comes out of the late 1980s uh, and early 1990s when LGBT uh, Native American people were beginning to really re-energize their organizing. Uh, there'd been some organizing of, of gay and lesbian Indians in San Francisco in the 1970s, which I talk about in the book, you know, groups coalescing around people like Randy Burns and Barbara Cameron in the San Francisco Bay Area. But it it wasn't really until the late 1980s and 1990s that um, LGBTQ people got started to, to re-energize those efforts and get together uh, and part of the reason they got together in the midst of the AIDS crisis, I should point out, too, was because they were being once again marginalized, not only by mainstream, quote unquote, mainstream culture, but also by the gay and lesbian community uh, as well. And so they had to take things into their own hand and try to figure out a way, uh, this sort of so-called problem of naming that they were talking about at the time, what's the most appropriate label for us that we can use that's embedded in, in an indigenous tradition that might apply, that might provide a political space for Native people who are LGBTQ, but are also more than that, right? So those labels of lesbian or gay or queer were still considered very offensive in the 1980s and early 1990s. And there's a lot of elders I spoke to who still can't use that term queer, but these other labels, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, etc., a lot of people could say, yeah, that's part of me, but it doesn't capture the full essence of what it means to, to be gender and sexual, sexually fluid in a native context. And so they came up with, with this English translation, Two-Spirit, which is adopted from the Algonquin uh, term Nij Manadawog which basically means feminine and masculine in a single person. And it was at the 1990 gathering of, of gay and lesbian Indians in, in Manitoba, Canada, that that was decided upon. I, I wasn't obviously there, but it was. I can imagine it was a wonderful gathering of people coming together and debating and talking and celebrating, dancing and, and engaging in ceremony. And people from all tribal communities uh, throughout North America, not just the United States, but the US, Canada, the mailing list included indigenous Australians also. So this, you know, very early, this was sort of transnational in scope to try and find this pan-Indian umbrella term that, that could be used both in a native and non-native context. There's an awful lot of homophobia in Indian country at this time also, but also provide a language that communities, um, non-Indigenous communities could, could recognize themselves and identify and say, oh, that's Native, okay, how do we need to, how should we approach and engage diplomatically, culturally, socially? Um, what are the specific needs of Native communities, right? And this term provided an entry point for that. And then from there, you could get down into tribally specific traditions and knowledge uh, related to two-spirit people. And there are many. Um, there's, there's at least 100, over 150 tribal communities throughout North America that we know of that had traditions of sexual and gender fluidity uh, and people who bridged our traditional understandings, Western understandings of, of male and female. And as I say, probably more. So how far back do you go with the history? 
I begin the book. I begin the book in around 1515, um, and that's an important date in native culture generally, and native history generally, but specifically to Two Spirit people today. In 1515, the Spaniard Balboa invaded the homelands of the of the Quava people in what is today Panama, and that is a famous scene in early colonial history in which the Spaniards set their dogs on people who they labeled sodomites. And this is where I talk, where I talk a great deal about the violence of, of the colonial archive in terms of both the physical violence it exacted on people uh, at the time, but also the sort of psychological violence that reverberates down into this, into this day. So labels like sodomite, hermaphrodite, badash, uh, a term with ancient Arabic roots, um, that, that basically designated a, a prostitute or a kept boy. You know, these are not things that existed in native cultures, right? But these are labels that Europeans used. And Balboa is one of the f- earliest recorded examples of this type of exterminatory violence being perpetrated on people because of their perceived gender and sexual orientation. And the violence was horrific. It's, it's depicted subsequently by uh, European engravers, which I talk about in the book. But that incident continues to sort of reverberate in the historical consciousness of a lot of two-spirit people and, and is often a link or a bridge to the history of colonial violence and colonialism more broadly and what it represents when they continue to encounter violence in the 21st century. Um, and this is particularly an issue for, for trans communities generally the moment in the United States, but particularly native trans communities, where there's an awful lot of transphobia and and violence associated um, with their daily lives, unfortunately. And so this contextualizes those contemporary events, moments like that. Uh, Having said that, what I do is I try to go back and contextualize then. So this is what Europeans saw and and what they imagined they saw, I should, should say, and how they responded. But what might indigenous people have seen right before the Europeans got there? And so I go about that by looking at things like archaeology and art and sort of the traces of history and how people embodied their identities over time and in different spaces uh, to try and reconstruct how how native people that we understand today as two-spirit or call themselves today two-spirit how they would have moved around their communities, what kind of roles they would have played bridging cleavages within their own communities, roles of educators, of matchmakers, of people who nurtured uh, the sick back to health, of people with great medicinal knowledge, for example. You know, a whole range of, of skills and knowledge that Two-Spirit peoples uh, had in their respective tribal communities that was effectively targeted by Europeans when they began to arrive, beginning with the Spanish, and targeting quite deliberately. Um, It's one of the things that I struggled with in writing the book was the degree to which I should portray some of that violence, both the physical violence and the violence in the language, And I talked a great deal with community members and elders about this. 
And the general consensus was, so long as it contextualizes our historical and contemporary experiences, we're, we're okay with it. We're not concerned that you're fetishizing the violence, but that you're explaining it and historicizing it in a way that helps people understand our encounters with European colonialism and just how incredible the fact that native knowledge related to two-spirit peoples was able to not only survive but thrive um, as it is in the 21st century through all of these centuries of, of um, different forms of violence. So, so yeah, it's, it's in, in that sense then, it's this understanding the reclaiming of two spirits in the 21st century is a book that is sort of has that constant tension running through it of native people fighting and finding different ways to resist the oppressiveness of colonialism and the deliberate attempts of colonial actors to try and sever two-spirit peoples from their communities. Because Europeans recognized that those two-spirit people were in many communities the glue that held those communities together, the knowledge keepers. Do you have a specific story about a two-spirit person uh, from history that you know, maybe you could share with my listeners to get like a better, clearer understanding. Yeah, there's quite a few. And the story, I mean, this, as I said, there's a lot of, a lot of characters that I try to flesh out in the book, both contemporary, but also going back to the 18th and 19th centuries. But the one figure that that crops up again and again, and you see in internet searches and during Pride Month, during Native American Heritage Month, is Wiwa. Uh, Wiwa was a, a Zuni a Lahamana. And I mentioned Wiwa because I was uh, recently at an elders panel for the Bay Area American Indian Two Spirits. They had their power because of COVID on Zoom this year. And, you know, I tuned into that and I was really struck by some of the elders talking about how younger Two Spirit people are completely unaware, not only of elders from the recent past, so the 1970s, for example, great figures like Phil Tingley. Um, I mentioned Barbara Cameron, Cameron, uh, Randy Burns, for example, who's who's still alive and very influential. Clyde Hall. I mean, these are uh, instrumental figures in the contemporary two-spirit movement. But even beyond that, some of the major historical figures who were celebrated in their own communities, but also uh, received fleeting fame in sort of the broader media culture uh, of America in the 18th and 19th century, um, a lot of younger Two-Spirit people don't know their stories. And I was surprised to hear when one of the elders talked about how uh, these younger Two-Spirit kids, they, they just never have heard of, of Wiwa. And it reminded me of two things. Um, it reminded me of how hard we have to work to hold on to historical knowledge uh, and to assimilate it meaningfully into our present lives. And it also told me how, sort of reminded me of how fleeting life is and, and the contributions we make, which are very meaningful to us and our communities in the moment. And it, it feels, as a historian, it feels somewhat sort of cold to me that those contributions are forgotten, but that's kind of the way it is. We live in the present. We don't, most of us don't live thinking about history and the historical past. 
I do. Yeah, I I'm, I'm one of those people. I do. I'm stuck in the past. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Weewa was one of those figures. Weewa, as I mentioned, is is celebrated today as this two spirit hero. But Weewa herself wouldn't have used that term to describe themselves. They would have been known as a Lahamana, as I said. And Weewa was known as a you know a skilled artist, but also more than that, a, a, as a skilled diplomat and educator of small children. All reports from, from written sources and oral histories collected at the time suggest that Weewa was absolutely beloved by children. Weewa was, was tall, uh, about six foot, so Weewa stood out in a crowd in the 19th century, born in 1849, met up with a woman by the name of Matilda Cox Stevenson, who visited the Zuni in the late 19th century and began to befriend Weewa. And Stevenson was part of anthropological fieldwork that was being done in the Southwest quite extensively during the late 19th century. And Native people then, as now, were kind of, you know, leery about anthropologists, and I hate to say it, but historians too, and for good reason. Anthropologists, historians, social scientists, uh, in the early 20th century psychologists said some really terrible things about Native people and, and misrepresented their culture uh, horribly. But Weewa was so skilled at getting to know people, it seems, across cultural boundaries. And even though Stevenson was rather haughty and had a very high opinion of herself, the sense that I get going over the archival material is that uh, Weewa had Stevenson's measure and was in some ways using Stevenson to advance the cause, not only of, of themselves, but of the Zuni more generally, right? And so the, I don't want to give away the end of the story, but Z the, um, the Zuni decide that Weewa will visit Washington, D.C. In, in the 1880s, right? And then in sort of the debutante season of 1885, Weewa comes out into society of Washington, D.C., and ultimately uh, meets the president and ostensibly serves the role as a Zuni diplomat pressing the president of the United States on matters that are of utmost significance to the Zuni at the time, which is just, you know, it's, it's typical. It's standard procedure for people of uh, Weewa's standing to play that type of role. But historically, think about history and the history of diplomacy, right? It's, it's this man's world. It's a very masculine world, um, a macho world, um, saber rattling and all of that. Weewa was able to navigate that world more than successfully and, and, and to the advantage of the Zuni, if, if briefly. That's a great story. Because, yeah, like you say, it, Weewa straddled all the different lines and understood uh it sounds like understood uh diplomacy and uh how to utilize it for her and her tribe's betterment i think so yeah um Weewa was was highly intelligent highly art articulate and and skilled as a as i say as an as an artist and educator but um all of those skills would have come together for her in recognizing throughout her life, actually, the, the sort of shifting, the shifting nature of American culture and American imperialism, 
I mean, Weewa's life coincides with the sort of rising tide of American racism as it spreads across the West and its associated uh, misogyny uh, as well. And, and, you know, this wasn't too many years after the great American painter George Catlin expressed his desire that this tradition that Weewa represented be uh, exterminated forever, that no one would understand it, that it would be sort of wiped away from the pages of history uh, before scholars, much less the lay public, could understand it. So that's, you know, that's quite incredible that Weewa was able to negotiate that world and then towards the end of Weewa's life, also negotiate a world that is moving incrementally towards taking indigenous children and severing them from traditional kinship bonds uh, through the boarding schools that tended to proliferate by the 1880s, 1890s, and into the early 20th century. So her Weewa's world is sort of bookmarked by those, those extreme attacks on uh, American Indian culture and what we understand today is as two-spirit knowledge um, and knowledge-keeping, that she was able, as you say, to, to navigate that world is, is reflective both of her skill, but I think it's not uncommon for people throughout the American West, the Plains, both Northern and Southern Plains, the Pacific Northwest, uh, and in California, for people like Weewa to be successful in both standing up to colonialism, but also really being very savvy in the way that they negotiated it to keep those traditions alive. And so I come back to that elder panel just this past month, the Bates Powwow. I mean, that's why we need to remember people like Weewa mm -hmm. is because they are the archives. They were the ones who kept this knowledge alive and passed it down. Even if, if a kin member within their tribal community was not as we would understand it today, Two-Spirit, she would have told them those stories. And those stories were kept alive by elders and they continued to pass them down through oral traditions, through writing, through stories, through arts, um, through just the way we embody uh, history in our everyday lives. I think it's a really exciting time for historians and the way that we're starting to maybe look at history mm. in that there's a lot of fresh material out there and people like you, I've had some really great, I can't tell you how grateful I am. I've had some great authors in the past week that have talked about different uh, topics that really shine the light on, you know, histories that would have been erased, yeah. you know, that were all but erased. That's why I love doing this show and I love to talk to people like you. And I, you know, thank you for writing this history because it's, you know, important history. I, I, I will say, I mean, I do think we as historians do have a responsibility in relation to, to doing these types of histories. Um, and I say that from, from a number of, of perspectives. I mean, one is, I mean, for me personally, I wasn't born in the United States. I was I was born in Australia, for all intents and purposes, an immigrant, a guest. So I'm very conscious of my outsider status on many levels, and that's both a, in my scholarship a strength and a weakness. But above all else, I see it as as 
both an opportunity and a responsibility to the Native communities that I work with and write uh, for, uh, not about for. And, and there is a distinction because there has been this long colonial tradition in Western, what we call historiography or historical writing, where European descended authors have imposed they, what they interpret as their meaning of, of what it is to be indigenous onto native communities. And that was almost their intent from the beginning. And I think it's our responsibility then to, to listen to elders and community members today and to sort of think about how the wishes and aspirations of those communities in the present might mesh with or not with the historical material that we've been left with and how they can inform our reading of historical materials that were left or erased or eliminated by by colonizers and, and in colonial archives. And I have to say, I mean, I've written a lot of books that have, have touched upon quote-unquote marginal topics in American historiography or topics that historians have not wanted to touch. And there's an awful lot of erasure that's done um, some quite clearly deliberate gaps in the colonial archive that you have to compensate for somehow, and you do that through engaging with Native voices in the present, whether that be talking to people or engaging with, with people's uh, arts and this, talking to them about ceremony, what is appropriate to include in a book, what's not. All of those things need to have a very sort of n- nimble and agile uh, approach to to understanding um, native experiences because they are so diverse. Why this history? I mean, you you you're Australian born. You're not of this community, apparently, which I didn't know. Hmm. Why this history? I am a U.S. citizen now. I don't know if that that doesn't seem to matter though. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I grew up in Australia or came of age in Australia in the 19, late 1980s and early 1990s. And if anyone knows anything about Australian history, that was the era of, of land rights in Australia, or was seemingly the high watermark of, of the modern history of land rights in Australia. And that's where we have famous cases like uh, the Mabo decision and the Wick decision in the late 80s and early 90s that seem to be moving in a positive direction towards recognizing land rights and sovereignty of indigenous Australians. Um, it hasn't worked out that way, but it was such a promising era. And I, my, my political consciousness and my scholarly interests were formed um, in that context. And through a combination of, of you know, undergraduate study and summer work projects, internships, where I engaged in research that we call, to, we call today global indigenous history, looking at land rights throughout uh, the colonized world, I became sort of fixated on telling stories about people who have ostensibly been bullied by colonizers for four or five hundred years and working with communities who often don't have the resources and helping younger scholars within those communities to to get their own degrees and access uh, a path towards writing or telling their particular community's history. So that was kind of the journey that I took, and I'm still on it. Uh, I don't plan to get off it anytime soon. It's it's a highly rewarding path, I think. I mean, nothing gives me more pleasure, actually, than than talking about these topics 
with young minds who then go on to do a variety of good things in their communities uh, with this knowledge and, and build on it. So, but I, you know, as I say, I'm, I'm very lucky and, and I have to acknowledge, uh, even though I'm an outsider to the United States, I have to acknowledge, you know, the privileges and, and the opportunities that I've received and to do good with that. That's what I strive for through the work that I do. Mm. Is there anything that I, we haven't talked about that you want to share with my listeners about this subject or anything else? Yeah. I, the, one thing I, I do think is important to note is that the existence of two spirit people is 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 growing. Uh, I think awareness and consciousness is is growing, and that's as a result of two spirit people themselves. It's a result of their their activism. It's a result of their politics. It's a result of just some incredibly creative writing and artistic work that's being done right now among two spirit writers and artists. And I think over the next decade or so, I think that's going to continue. And I think that's important. I think what needs to happen moving forward is is two-spirit people continue to take the lead in telling their own stories about this. People like myself in the academy will be allies and supporters and do whatever we can to assist in that. But it's, it is definitely going to be uh, two-spirit people who continue to push for visibility uh, of two-spirit history and culture and knowledge, not only in Native communities, but in, in the broader culture as well. And I think that's important because over the last couple of years, we've seen some examples of two-spirit people in popular culture that hasn't been particularly flattering towards two-spirit people. The, one of the more recent controversies was the representation of, of uh, Two-Spirit People in the HBO series Lovecraft Country, which briefly represents a Two-Spirit character that is ostensibly assassinated for, for no reason whatsoever. Um, and that attracted an enormous amount of, of controversy at the time, and, and rightly so. It was just a, a, a gratuitous representation of, of violence towards uh, sexual and gender non-conforming people that harken back to Balboa and all of those horrible stereotypes of, of the colonial archive. Mm. And there are other examples. I mean, the, the, um, the show Fargo recently had a two-spirit character whose the character's name was Swanee. And a fairly underdeveloped character, it has to be said. But the, the actress who played her, uh, a woman by the name of Kelsey Asbel Chow, claimed to be a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. And the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians came out subsequently and said, we have no record of this person on our roles or ever living, being part of community. And so it was just another example of, of appropriation uh, seemingly to advance a non-Indigenous person's career on the back of, of her understanding and perhaps stereotypes of, of Native people. And so this is why I say it's very important. These recent cultural examples of two-spirit people in pop culture really underscore the need for culture makers to consult with Native communities, but particularly two-spirit uh, people and two-spirit elders. Is there a place in pop culture where we see representation 
in a um a positive authentic way um if there is one thing i will say about the world of documentary filmmaking it is that documentarians are doing a wonderful job of capturing the diversity of two spirit experiences at the moment there's been a lot of really good documentary films that have been made through PBS. So, you know, Wisconsin Public uh, Broadcasting, for example, KQED out in the San Francisco Bay Area has done some good stuff. And there are a number of other Two-Spirit documentarians who have been making films that I talk about in the book and, and getting them out there. The issue is they deserve wider distribution because they're they're rich, they're beautifully told stories, and they, they underscore the, the complexities of, of how history interacts with our present to sort of create this living sense of history. And I think those stories, in, in my view, those stories deserve a much wider audience than they're receiving because they, they represent in culture two-spirit experiences in the plural and how that notion of what it is to be two-spirit is constantly changing and being negotiated within two-spirit communities themselves. It's it's not this sort of static noun. It's, we need to really kind of need to think about two spirits as, as a verb. It's always becoming, it's always being debated and talked about and how best can we represent ourselves and our communities. And that's what we're seeing in some of these really fabulous documentaries that are being made. Uh, at the moment. Do you have Do you have any names of them? Uh, yeah, well, there's one documentary uh, called Two Spirit that I recommend, and there's another. I'm blanking on the documentarian's name now. He made a documentary of um, the Bates Powwow several years ago. I've forgotten his name off the top of my head. We'll figure it out. I'll link. I'll link out to them. That's yeah, a wonderful documentary. So I'm going to ask you again. If we're, I mean, if we're pretty much finished talking about everything you wanted to talk about, mm-hmm. the name of the book. So, okay. <laughs> when it when it's coming out and where we can find it. And then where can we find you? So Reclaiming Two Spirits, uh, Sexuality, Spiritual Renewal, and Sovereignty in Native America will be out from Beacon Press in April uh, of this year, 2022. You'll be able to find it on the Beacon Random House uh, websites, Amazon, and where all good books are sold, I would imagine. And you can find me. You can find me on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. My email information is all over the internet, so I'm far too available. So if you need to get in touch, you'll be able to get in touch. Mm -hmm. And I generally respond. And you have a website. And I do. It's GregorySmithers.com, I believe. Okay. I'll link out to all those places. I really enjoyed talking to you today, Greg. Come back to the show anytime. If you have something you want to talk about, a new book or whatever. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure to meet you and, and to chat. There you have it. Gregory Smithers, Reclaiming Two Spirits. Be sure to check out our episode notes to find out more about Gregory Smithers, the book Reclaiming Two Spirits, and links to more information about the history of Two Spirits. Thanks for joining us. Have a great week.